I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Do you dread going into public restrooms? They're scarier now that we know that a flush can send viruses into the air. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Dr. Chuck Gerba is renowned as Dr. Germ. He's been studying microbes in bathrooms, break rooms, kitchens, and cafeterias for decades. What places are most contaminated? And what can you do to protect yourself? Dr. Gerba has been an advocate for sewage surveillance. What can we learn from pathogens found in wastewater? We also talk with an expert on sexually transmitted infections. What do you need to know about monkeypox? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, avoiding germs in bathrooms and bedrooms. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, the United States Preventive Services Task Force published its latest statin guidelines in JAMA. This independent panel of volunteer experts in disease prevention reviews medical evidence to make recommendations on how Americans can stay healthier. They've just updated their 2016 guidelines on using cholesterol-lowering statin drugs to reduce the likelihood of developing heart disease. Based on 26 studies of statins, the USPSTF concluded that people taking statins have a slightly lower chance of dying prematurely. It recommends that doctors prescribe statins to healthy people between 40 and 75 years old if they have at least one risk factor and their chance of developing cardiovascular disease over the next 10 years is 10% or higher. Despite this recommendation, there was no statistically significant reduction in death from heart disease among study subjects taking statins. To prevent one heart attack, 118 people needed to take a statin for several years. These experts maintain that statins are unlikely to cause serious side effects, such as diabetes or muscle pain. They base this judgment on the data reported from clinical trials. The panel members concluded that there's not enough evidence to determine whether statins are helpful for people over 75. The same is true for younger adults whose 10-year risk for cardiovascular disease is under 10%. Doctors are urged to use their best judgment in such cases. The recommendations from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force generated some controversy within the medical community. There were four editorials accompanying the publication in the JAMA family of journals. One cardiologist expressed her disappointment that the recommendations were not more aggressive. She'd like to see statins used earlier and for patients at lower risk. Another group of doctors also expressed disappointment in the recommendations, but for completely different reasons. They point out that statins do not reduce deaths from cardiovascular causes. They also point out that the task force recommendations overlook the differences between men and women, with women getting less benefit. They complain that the conclusion that statins have no significant adverse reactions is at odds with clinical experience, in which side effects are commonly reported. In particular, they cite an observational study in which 10% of people taking statins reported muscle pain. They recommend more emphasis on helping communities facilitate healthy eating, physical activity, and beneficial social interactions. In heart failure, the cardiac muscle struggles to pump blood efficiently. As a result, fluid may build up in the lower legs or even the lungs. For decades, doctors have warned heart failure patients to restrict their salt intake as much as possible to help control blood pressure and to reduce edema. A recent reanalysis of the data from a gold standard heart failure trial, the TopCat trial, suggests this advice may not be helpful. The researchers evaluated salt added during homemade food preparation with respect to an outcome combining cardiovascular death, heart failure hospitalization, and non-fatal heart attack. People who added some salt to their food had better results than those who added none. The researchers note that non-white people, especially those under 70, 
were most likely to suffer poor outcomes from overly strict salt reduction. They conclude, Clinicians should be prudent when giving salt restriction advice to patients with this type of heart failure. Prostate cancer is the most common cancer among American men after skin cancer. Roughly one man in eight will develop this disease sometime during his life. A study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition suggests that men who consume a lot of dairy products increase their risk for this kind of cancer. The researchers recruited more than 28,000 Seventh-day Adventists who were followed for an average of eight years. Men with higher intakes of dairy foods, but not non-dairy calcium, had a higher risk of prostate cancer compared with men having lower intakes. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Early in the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of people were concerned about sanitizing their hands and disinfecting surfaces like shopping cart handles or cereal boxes. How worried should you be about germs? In particular, should you be concerned about catching something in a public restroom? To find out, we are talking with Dr. Chuck Gerba. He's a professor of virology in the Department of Environmental Science at the University of Arizona. Dr. Gerba has an international reputation for his methodologies for pathogen detection in water and food, pathogen occurrence in households, and risk assessment. He's author of The Germ Freak's Guide to Outwitting Colds and Flu, Guerrilla Tactics to Keep Yourself Healthy at Home, at Work, and in the World. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Chuck Gerba. Thank you. Glad to be back again. Dr. Gerba, before the pandemic, the world seemed like it was divided into two kinds of people. And I admit, I am oversimplifying here, but what I observed was that there were those who worried about germs and those people who were carefree. And I say that because I've written about baristas who touch the lip of the coffee cups, you know, with their bare hands. Some people care. Some people are annoyed. Some people couldn't couldn't care less. Mm-hmm. Um, some people wash fruit when they buy it at the supermarket. Other people, they just eat it. Not a second's thought. Now, I think a lot of that did change with COVID, and many people actually started disinfecting with Clorox-type solutions their cereal boxes, their vegetables. You've been studying germs for decades. We talked to you 17 years ago about microbes on kitchen sponges, on countertops, on toilets. So here's the question. How concerned should we be about germs in general and SARS-CoV-2 in particular? Well, you know, we're in a way always practicing uh, germ warfare in a way, trying to keep the risk of exposure out. But we should be concerned probably more this generation than anywhere in the last uh, 50 years because things have changed so much too. Uh, we have bigger buildings, we have larger schools, we travel further than any before, more than any generation, uh, larger shopping facilities in that. So in, in reality, germs spread much more rapidly than previous generations. And really, you're coming into contact with more people every day and touching more surfaces than any generation in history is ever done before. So basically, we created the perfect storm this century for the rapid transmission and evolution uh, of new infectious diseases. So I think it's more important than ever before to uh, recognize this. You know, from my standpoint, is you don't want to overdo it either. And a lot of what I've done in my career is try to figure out where we need to focus in trying to prevent the spread of uh, viruses and other microorganisms in indoor environments by learning about human behavior in different facilities and where your greatest exposure occurs. So you can target your activities 
both cleaning, disinfection, uh, and your exposure to these rapidly evolving, really viral uh, pathogens. Well, we do have a lot of other things we want to talk about, but let me go ahead and get right to the heart of it. Where do we need to focus our attention if we want to reduce transmission of germs? And in particular, COVID. Yeah, I think uh, in particular, there's there's basically one thing you should know is that 80% of all common illnesses are transmitted by your hands. So hand sanitation, even with COVID, is, is really important. Now, we believe that COVID is largely transmitted by inhalation, but you should not neglect it in certain situations, particularly in high density situations like daycare centers, schools, and offices, touching surfaces and getting the COVID on your finger and bringing your fingers to your face is another way. Now, that may only be 20% or less of the ways it's transmitted, but it is a route. So you have to be aware that there are potentially two routes of transmission of COVID-19 inhalation. That's why they emphasize wearing face masks and potentially by touching surfaces, all that risk is much lower for that particular virus. Now, when we talk about surfaces, one of the surfaces that springs right to mind or some of the surfaces that spring to mind are bathrooms and public bathrooms in particular. You were recently quoted in an article in the New York Times about public bathrooms, and you talked about the aerosolized plume that happens when we flush the toilets. What can you tell us about that as a hazard? Yeah, I can tell you a lot. Actually, my career started in the toilet, and I kind of never got out of it. So we've learned a lot over the years on spread of disease by toilet. When you flush a toilet, it's like a toilet sneeze. You get droplets thrown out of the uh, the toilet, uh, and in those droplets can be microorganisms which can contaminate oh the floor, the walls, the toilet seat, and that. Uh, you'd be quite surprised on how contaminated uh, restrooms get from just flushing the uh, the toilet because they are ejected to some degree uh, out of the toilet every time you flush it. Well, you know, Dr. Gerber, there are toilets and there are toilets. And what I mean by that is, you know, the average bathroom toilet, it's not that big a deal. But, man, when you go into a public toilet and you hit that little that little, um, you know, bar. It or you may not even have to hit the bar. You might just stand up. Right. And sometimes it happens when you're still sitting down and and it sounds like a tornado. And it's not it's not just like a little circular flume of water. It It's it's very impressive. And and that's, I guess, what concerns me more than anything else, especially when it goes off and you're not quite prepared for it or ready for it. Uh, yeah, it, you, you, because of that high water pressure, you get more contamination of surfaces uh, in a public restroom uh, than you do in a home restroom, which is usually a tank type toilet in that. You know, one thing to avoid it is the middle stalls, you know, in, in our studies of toilets, public toilets, the middle stalls are always the germiest in interviewing people. They tend to prefer the middle stall. So yeah, if you want fewer germs, always go for the first stall all the time because fewer people seem to use that. And you're more likely to find enough toilet paper. Now, you suggest closing the lid before flushing, which might be great at home, but um, public restrooms don't always have lids. In fact, rarely do they have lids. Yeah, they really do. And, and so as a result, at least in our work, we found that they get more contaminated at the top of the toilet seat. So it may pay to wipe the top of the toilet seat uh, or avoid touching it if you can. Or if you do, make sure you wash your hands afterward because public toilets, you get a lot more contamination because of the high water pressure, to be honest. Now, washing your hands afterwards, when we talked to you before, you told us that one of the most contaminated surfaces in the bathroom was actually the tap handle to turn the taps on. I am pleased to see when I go into a public restroom these days, frequently they have automated taps. So you just stick your hands underneath and you don't have to touch the handle. You can wash your hands without touching a surface somebody else has already touched. But um, 
how do you get around that if you have an ordinary type uh, sink that has tap handles, how do you avoid contaminating your hands when you turn the water off? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a really trick. That's why I always recommend in a, in a restroom, use a hand sanitizer as the last step. In our work, we find that most people don't wash their hands effectively enough. Uh, in our studies of, in public restrooms, only one in five person adequately washes their hand long enough. Half don't use soap. So it's really important, I think, to to have a hand sanitizer with you in the home. And you'll see a lot of them now in public restrooms now. And that should be the the final step when you walk out of a, a restroom or a toilet. One of the problems for me in a public restroom is not... Not so much the the faucet, which I'm pretty careful about and um, follow your instructions, but it's the the dryer. If you don't have paper towels, there are now air dryers in some public restrooms that sound like a jet engine taking off. And not only is the sound a little disturbing, but the idea that it could be blowing germs all around the room. What have you discovered? Yeah, there have been a lot of studies on that in, in terms of what's better, the, a blow dryer or a paper towel. In general, there is concern with the blow dryer blowing things off your hands, particularly these high-pressure ones where you have droplets on your hands that may be blowing the organisms around. My concern is in, in, in our studies, we've noticed that fewer people will uh, end up drying their hands uh, if there's a blow dryer versus a paper towel, or they dry them on their hips, I've noticed a lot. And so I think it's a convenience thing and a concern that you're circulating mi- viruses and other microorganisms around the restroom with those blow dryers. So I always prefer paper towels. What suggestions do you have that we haven't covered yet for avoiding germs in, in restrooms or other public spaces? I think one of the important things is, is always your hands is make sure you bring I bring a hand sanitizer with you because it's very effective against uh, the SARS-CoV-2 and other viruses in that. And it makes it convenient because, again, about 80 percent of the infections you might get during your lifetime are largely transmitted by your hands. So that's one thing you can always do. The other thing is it perhaps bring uh, a pocket of disinfectant wipes. And they come in handy with uh, high-touch surfaces like uh, coffee tables, tables you might sit on, airplane trays. The most contaminated air, place in an airplane is actually the tray in front of you, we found. So I think bringing those with you when you're going to be in public places, particularly when there's like their high-touch areas that other people are going to touch on frequent spaces, tabletops. You know, the other thing is like the coffee break room in an office building. It's the tabletops in the coffee break room that are the most contaminated, we find. You're listening to Dr. Chuck Gerba, professor of virology in the Department of Environmental Science at the University of Arizona. He's renowned for his pathogen detection work in homes and workplaces. After the break, we'll talk about wastewater surveillance. What can we learn from studying sewage? SARS-CoV-2 isn't the only scary thing out there. We also discussed norovirus. What are the most contaminated places in hospitals? If you have to wash scrubs at home, how do you sanitize them? What has this pandemic experience taught us about avoiding germs to stay healthy? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code People's 15. More information at cocovia.com.
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, we're talking about germs and how we can avoid them in bathrooms, break rooms, and other places they may be lurking. Obviously, hospitals have to worry a lot about bacteria, viruses, and fungi sticking to surfaces. What are the most contaminated spots in a hospital? Should doctors and other healthcare providers worry about their jewelry, white coats, electronic devices, and stethoscopes? Who should be doing the laundry, and how should it be done? Our guest is Dr. Chuck Gerba, who is renowned for his research on detecting germs in kitchens, bathrooms, workplaces, and households. Dr. Gerba is a professor of virology in the Department of Environmental Science at the University of Arizona. The book he wrote is The Germ Freak's Guide to Outwitting Colds and Flu. Dr. Gerba, over the last, uh, during this pandemic, actually, we have discovered that wastewater can actually be a source of information. So sewage surveillance can tell us when there are COVID infections. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that some institutions in Arizona have actually led the way on this. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, you know what uh, what happens is a lot of these viruses you're infected, whether they're both like SARS-CoV-2, which is respiratory or intestinal infections, these viruses are excreted in the feces and end up in the sewage. And actually, that's been used, that knowledge, for about 50 years for monitoring for polio virus uh, in wastewater and tracking down communities which have active cases of polio viruses. But it's really been brought to attention with the SARS-CoV-2. And right as the outbreak was starting, uh, our group at the University of Arizona started monitoring the wastewater of both the city of uh, Tucson uh, and the dormitories trying to identify cases. Because we found that we could uh, actually identify cases four to 10 days before people became clinically ill in the dormitory. So what we did is on a daily basis, we screened the dormitories to identify if anyone in a dormitory of say 100 to 300 people was actually affected because very sensitive technique. We could find one person in that dormitory if they were infected because they would be excreting the virus into the sewage. And so at the end of the day, we could come in and test the students and find the one that was infected and isolate him uh, into a quarantine dorm to keep the spread of the virus uh, going uh, on on campus. So we were very successful in doing that. And then we could actually, the health department used our data uh, with the wastewater saying, oh, the cases are going to be increasing in the next four to 10 days in Tucson, because that's kind of the lead way we could get. It's been very successful. This It's used around the world now, this type of monitoring, and the Centers for Disease Control is setting up Sentinel uh, sites that monitor the wastewater around the country to look at the spread of SARS-CoV-2. And, and now even people are starting to look for the monkeypox virus in the wastewater and being able to demonstrate its occurrence in the wastewater. So we'll probably get an idea, a truer idea of how many cases there are of SARS-CoV-2 and monkeypox in a community. It seems like such a good idea that we should be monitoring wastewater, not just for COVID, monkeypox, but why not lots of things that are transmitted? Like, can we monitor for norovirus, for example? Yes, that's a good question. Yeah, you can monitor for almost any disease-causing organism in wastewater. And I think that's why the Center for Disease Control is setting up sentinel sites. We realize we could do influenza. Is it going to be a bad year? How many cases are there truly? Are? Can we look for noroviruses? You know, norovirus is a good one. We, we can see increasing cases of norovirus in the winter when that's the height of the season. And you can see it's uh, uh, actually coming. You know, one of the other things that the wastewater told us too, with the increased hygiene, sanitation, that the 
incidence of illnesses of influenza and norovirus dropped dramatically. And that's because people were paying, we believe, more attention to hygiene, sanitation, and that. And it dramatically decreased the number of cases of those illnesses in the United States uh, over the last two years. Speaking of norovirus, Dr. Gerba, I'd like you to explain to people what it is, why it's such a problem, and it's not just cruise ships, and and why we should be thoughtful about when the barista actually does handle our, our the lip of our coffee cup, or why the person who is serving us when they bring us our Coke and they touch the top of our Coke glass it may not be such a good thing after all, and why why germs are something we should be concerned about. You know, that's a good question. Norovirus is one of the reasons we're concerned of it is because it takes so few to infect you, like maybe one to 10 virus. And when you're ill, you're excreting billions of viruses in your feces. And usually 70 percent of the people uh, throw up when they're infected with norovirus. So that spreads it very effectively in that. So you don't have to have many viruses on your hands to transmit that. And it is the most common cause of viral diarrhea in the United States. It closes more facilities, dormitories, restaurants, hospital emergency rooms than any other agent, actually, because it is so infectious. But you brought up a good point about people touching coffee cups and other facilities. Restaurants are often pinpointed uh, during outbreaks because you have an ill server in that, and he uh, touches the coffee cup. You know, we did a study some years ago testing coffee cup uh, lids that were paired for us at, uh, you know, uh, coffee uh, outlets that uh, have quick coffee you can get. And it was interesting, like uh, 25% of them contain fecal bacteria on the coffee cup because when they put the lid they're putting their hand on the lid when they do that. And so they contaminate the lip all the time of the coffee cup. So don't have them put the lip, the, the cover on. Do that yourself because <laughs> there's potential for contaminating the lip of the uh, coffee uh, container. Now, Dr. Gerber, I want to ask what else worries you when we go around day to day, everyday life? Uh, years ago, we talked about kitchen sponges and how scary they are. Um, what other hazards have you found that uh, have you concerned? Well, I, I think what it, uh, one uh, that bothers me is a lot in looking at office buildings, we tried to pinpoint where you see most of the uh, viruses. We learned that if a person walks in with a <clears throat> viral infection like a cold and uh, he will transmit that virus will move through the whole facility. And within about four hours, about half the surfaces, tabletops, things you touch in that facility would be contaminated. We're really impressed how fast somebody can contaminate a place. Germia spot in your office building is, again, the uh, coffee break room. People spread germs and gossip apparently in the same place. There are more germs in a coffee break room than in the restroom because people don't use disinfectants as commonly in the uh, break room as they do in the restroom and that. So I think really what we learn in the spread of uh, viral diseases in offices, particularly, uh, use put a hand sanitizer on your desk and use a disinfectant wipe. Even though other people may not be using your desk, you're bringing uh, germs in and putting them on your computer keyboard without realizing in tabletops, so they may be accumulating in there is what we've seen. So I think there's a lot of improvement that can be done in, in offices in that. And I think the same thing with schools concern me. We've learned that if you disinfect children's desks uh, once a day, we can reduce absenteeism by as much as 50%. Why? The germia spot in a school is a kid's desk. There's more fecal organisms on a kid's desktop than in the restroom in a public school, which surprises. But, you know, they're sitting there most of the day with their hands on that surface and they're contaminating all the time. And, and that kind of actually surprises too. Uh, but we, and, and the other thing, uh, another area we've studied of interest is, is going to um, hospitals and, and healthcare facilities and going to the cafeteria. And uh, believe it or not, the uh, cafeteria tables you can find a lot of germs to be concerned about that get transmitted. Why you have people coming in there that are ill, visiting ill people, 
Uh, people may be walking in there with contaminated clothing after seeing a patient. But uh, surprisingly, one of the more germy areas in the hospital is the cafeteria tabletop. So you know, it's always these kind of surprises uh, we didn't really expect. Dr. Gerba, speaking of healthcare facilities, I have um, I've made a lot of doctors, nurses very upset with me because I have asked questions about clinics and hospitals regarding things like jewelry, doctor's ties, stethoscopes, sphygmomanometer cuffs, um, you know, all, all of the, the stuff that people wear. It's not unusual for nurses and doctors to come in their scrubs to work and not change at work and then to go to the supermarket or, or go, you know, to the bank. So can you talk a little bit about healthcare facilities, clothing, as well as equipment? Yes, uh, we, we've been studying all of those. You know, one that surprised me was a physician's ties. They've been pinpointed in some studies, and we collected a number of them. And I was quite surprised uh, of the ties we got from physicians. All of them had E. coli on them, which I don't think we, we were quite puzzled by that. But I don't think it's a good idea uh, to wear a full tie if you're a physician, probably a bow tie if you want to wear one may be a better option. But their clothing is always a way you can transmit infectious disease. We've studied the scrubs and clothing of, of physicians and healthcare workers before, and they do get quite contaminated during the day. And our recommendation was never to take clothing home and wear it to work. You should really deposit it and pick it up at work only, because there was a, a move some years ago where people were being encouraged to take their professional clothing home and wash it. And we found that that was not a good idea because one, you could contaminate clothing of your family uh, and you could pick up clothing uh, of microorganisms and clothing of your family. In fact, we found oftentimes clothing was more germier after they washed it home and brought more of their clothing to work because uh, they probably weren't using hot water or bleach like clothing is usually processed in the healthcare facility. So that's another route. Clothing is always quite interesting. We did a lot of studies on clothing to ensure that a standard cold water washes would kill SARS-CoV-2, which it did uh, on it. But if anybody is ill in the home, we always recommend they always use the hottest water possible or use a sanitizer, which are available for laundry. Because some viruses, like the norovirus we recommend it, is very hardy. And you really should use hot water and a sanitizer when, if you expect anybody in your household is infected with uh, the norovirus and that. But. Now, when you're talking about home laundry, what kind of sanitizer are we talking about? Well, they're available in the stores. You can either use bleach. If you don't want the bleach, substitutes work very well as sanitizers. And there are other products that are specifically made as sanitizers for doing the laundry. And I would, if you have children, I certainly would have those on, on hand because they get ill often more with both noroviruses, rotaviruses, which cause diarrhea, and salmonella, which really, if you're using a cold water wash, can survive. But the, the bleach substitutes work quite well if you're worried about staining and uh, damage to clothing. Okay. Now, let me ask you about the, the white coats and the scrubs that we were just talking about. How many of our hospitals actually have facilities for doing that laundry on site? Yes, yeah, some hospitals do the laundry on site, particularly like cleaning cloths they might use in patients' rooms. But a lot of them today contract out to, to uh, fac facilities that actually do the laundry on a regular basis. And they're supposed to have a routine for doing hot water washes and using bleaches and that. So usually that type of work, at least the hospitals we worked, is usually contracted out. Some healthcare facilities we're encouraging people take their, their scrubs home and process them in that. But I, I think that trend is ending because of the concerns I just mentioned about maybe exposing your family or picking up disease-causing bacteria from family members may not be aware they're ill. Dr. Gerba, I'm wondering about things like phones. I mean, every doc these days has got a cell phone. That sometimes they're wearing watches. Um, they may have tablets to show patients what's going on with, you know, elegant drawings. How contaminated are those electronic devices? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Phones, we've studied those a lot, both office and, and portable phones. And they, are, they, I mean, most people talk dirty without realizing it because there's so many germs on the phones all the time that we find. Uh, and there have been outbreaks in healthcare facilities of uh, methicillin-resistant uh, staph aureus, which is a skin infection, due to phones in facilities. We do know phones can be involved in transmission of at least that organism, but you're constantly touching phones. You get a virus, bacteria on your hand, you touch a phone, you deposit it, you put it in your pocket, you touch the phone later, you take it off your uh, the phone, get it on your finger, and then you can move it around. So really, phones are germ mobile devices uh, also by exposing it. Germius phones, teenagers, and then cooks and dishwashers are the three germiest phones that we found uh, on it. Office phones tend to be fairly germy. The desk phones are, are tend to be germ because nobody ever really disinfects a, a office phone, it seems like, on a regular basis. Dr. Gerber, I've met people who just grab fruit out of the fruit stand or out of the supermarket and start chomping away, whether it's an apple or a plum or a peach. Uh, your thoughts about that, and what is the best way to wash fruit? Yeah, you should really always practice washing. If nothing else, rinse it. The best way is try to rinse it. They recommend a lot of times, particularly if you're immunocompromised, uh, bleach water, you know, diluted bleach water, you know, a tablespoon in a uh, quart of water is good enough to sanitize it, particularly if you're immunocompromised, good idea. Never a good idea to eat in the supermarket or where you're going to buy it, because how many other people touch that or how much touching and handling took place during actually harvesting and processing it. So not a good idea. Other places where we would not necessarily anticipate germs to show up. I mean, you've been sleuthing microbes viruses, all kinds of nasty things for a very long time. And one thing that comes to my mind would be restaurant menus. I mean, you sit down to eat at dinner. You're not going to go to the restroom and wash your hands after you hold that menu and point at things and wonder what's best. Are they a problem? And what else might be? Yeah, menus is a good point. It, particularly reusable plastic menus, we've actually tested those. And you do find fecal bacteria on them, surprisingly, for several reasons. One, people may be handling them, but a lot of times they'll they'll wipe them down with a sponge that has adequate inadequate amount of disinfectant, so you actually contaminate the menu. Yeah, it wouldn't be a bad idea to wash your hands after you handle the menu or use a hand sanitizer, because they do get, uh, at least plastic ones we found, get fairly contaminated. You know, the, the tabletop in front of you, too, even though it's wiped down between uh, customers, a lot of times there's inadequate use of the sanitizers in those sponges. And I mean, we've tested them before they wipe the uh, tabletops and after, and sometimes they layer, lay down a thin layer of E. coli for you to eat uh, lunch with. The other area is the child seats for uh, infants in that, that they're often sitting uh -huh. in, in that. They can get really germy, as you might expect. Children aren't as sanitary as you might think they are. So you <laughs> might have a disinfectant wipe with you to that. The, the other part is in cars and in, in, in the germiest parts in, in uh, cars are the children's car seats because a lot of times, you know, they're diaper age and that. So you might want to clean that once in a while. <laughs> the other germy place in a car is the uh, uh, steering wheel and the uh, dashboard because all the air goes around the dashboard and the germs impact on the dashboard a lot. So car seat, dashboard, oh, coffee cup holder and steering wheel are the germiest places in a car. Now, Dr. Gerba, if we're um, anxious to avoid smearing germs around and just rearranging them with our sponge, how do we actually clean or disinfect the sponge between swipes? Yeah, there's a number of couple of strategies. We found uh, soaking them in uh, a bleach or disinfectant between uses works, using a, a disinfectant cleaner. Uh, those are available. Uh, you can put them in the dish machine. Just make sure they don't get loose uh, and clog the dish machine. And some people have done microwaving them for like 15 seconds is another option because it heats it up. So those are four options. I, I think using a disinfectant cleaner is probably the best and safest one. Now, I have to tell you, Dr. Gerber, we have been spanked 
very royally by readers of our newspaper column because somebody put a sponge in the microwave and it was dry and it burst into flame and it smelled up the entire house. And we were, you know, as I said, spanked pretty hard and and we're told don't ever recommend that again. Yeah, you know, to be honest, my least, that's why I said uh, using of a, a sanitizer when cleaning, because the two, not the per, is the microwave and, and the uh, dishwasher, because the dishwasher can get loose. I got spanked because it got loose in the dishwasher and clogged somebody's dishwasher and flooded their kitchen, and they'd spank me for that one. <laughs> so those are the least preferred options. Now, what about what about microwaves, especially a microwave in a break room where everybody uses it and nobody cleans it? Right. In a in a break room, it's nobody's responsibility to clean the microwave. So never happens. You're right. It's really bad. I think inside the microwave, we haven't found much of an issue, but it's the door handle. The door handle, you know, particularly in a break room, a lot of people are, you know, using the uh microwave to heat up the uh, meals or coffee and that. Mm -hmm. So I'm more, but the temperatures get high enough. We haven't really found much inside of a a microwave. Now, there's another item that we have been told is uh, particularly gross, and that is the remote control in a hotel room. Oh, yes, they are gross. Besides being the germiest object we could find, we found a semen on about 30% of them. So I don't really touch remote controls much anymore. Now, nowadays, they come in plastic sheets a lot of people put over. But it is because nobody ever disinfected. It's difficult with all the buttons to disinfect it. So it's, it's in our studies of hotel rooms, that always came out as number one in terms of the amount of germs we could find. Dr. Gerba. In just a couple minutes, I wonder if you can tell us what we have learned about the importance of avoiding germs during this ongoing pandemic and what suggestions you have for all of us staying healthy as we go forward. That's a good question. We've really learned a lot. We've seen a dramatic decrease in uh, other infections like uh, influenza virus, norovirus, like maybe 90% decrease because of the increased hygiene and sanitation and, and avoidance and, uh, that we did during the uh, peak of the pandemic and that. Uh, and it taught us a lesson that we, we can really reduce our, our risk for a common illnesses, colds, flus, and diarrhea by practicing sanitation. Now, what the question is, is what's the balance? Uh, and we don't think we all want to wear face masks all the time or gloves uh, all the time or maybe practice the degree of hygiene we have in the past. So I think it's important developing the right strategy, the right strategy of washing your hands, using a hand sanitizer, disinfecting those key surfaces that we're concerned about, because we can see it, it can dramatically reduce your risk of other common infections. Dr. Chuck. Gerba, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Sure, my pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Gerba. He's a professor of virology in the Department of Environmental Science at the University of Arizona. With hundreds of scientific publications to his credit, Dr. Gerba has an international reputation for his methodologies for pathogen detection in water and food, pathogen occurrence in households, and risk assessment. He's author of The Germ Freak's Guide to Outwitting Colds and Flu, Guerrilla Tactics to Keep Yourself Healthy at Home, at Work, and in the World. After the break, we'll be talking with an expert on sexually transmitted infections. Can you catch something like that from a toilet seat? How did the pandemic affect sexual behavior? Our guest speaks frankly about sex, so if that topic is not appropriate for you or your family right now, you may want to listen to the podcast later. We'll also talk about monkeypox. What should we know about how it's transmitted? Should people be tested for monkeypox when they get tested for other sexually transmitted infections? Dr. Ina Park will share her recommendations for healthy sexual relations.
You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia. G-A-I-A herbs.com. At this point, we'd like to offer a warning. Our next guest speaks frankly about sex, sexual behaviors, sexually transmitted infections, and ways to mitigate risk. While these topics are very relevant to public health, the discussion might not be suitable for all listeners. If you're listening with children or others for whom such language might not be appropriate, you can always listen to the podcast at a later date. We turn now to Dr. Ina Park. She's an associate professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. Her book is Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Ina Park. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here again with you all. Dr. Park, we just talked with Dr. Chuck Gerba about Mm -hmm. germs in kitchens, break rooms, and bathrooms. Mm -hmm. You were quoted in a New York Times article on germs in public restrooms that using a toilet seat cover might make sense to avoid the risk of MRSA. Well, Mm -hmm. What's MRSA and why should we be careful or worried about MRSA? Well, and, you know, just to be clear, I don't walk around actually too worried about um, catching things from public spaces, to be honest with you. But MRSA is um, MRSA, which is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. And so it's a bacteria, actually, that some people can have just living on the surface of their skin and it doesn't cause any problems, but it can cause some serious uh, skin and soft tissue infections in certain folks as well. And it's hard to know who is going to have, you know, a serious infection and who can actually just live with it sort of colonized on their body and just walk around unaware. But it can certainly live on surfaces. But luckily, it's also, you know, easily sort of disinfected and and cleaned from surfaces such as um, toilets and other hard surfaces as well. And the methicillin resistant part means that there are antibiotics that you would expect to kill it that don't. Exactly. So for the uh, types of Staphylococcus aureus that are not methicillin resistant, you can use lots of different types of penicillin antibiotics or in the, you know, in that family. But um, the MRSA uh, type of Staphylococcus aureus is not as easily killed. So you have to use a different class of antibiotics. So that's the main distinction between the two types. And the problem is, of course, that we don't always know what's on our bottom. I mean, what I mean by that is we might might have a little cut, we might have a pimple, we might have something else. And so when you sit down on a toilet seat, you don't know who was there before you. So should people be taking like a little sanitized uh, spray with them or or use that, uh, that, that cover? And I think, you know, I've not experienced this, but I have heard that a lot of times in women's bathrooms, in public bathrooms, that uh, a lot of women don't like to sit down. And so they hover the helicopter <laughs> effect and the, and the toilet seat t- sometimes gets kind of damp, shall we say? Which yes. is disgusting. 
It is. And so I don't know who's giving you your intel, but they are very, uh, you know, they've definitely, uh, you know, know their information. They know their stuff. So certainly, yes, that is true. If you have to sit to pee and, you know, there's some of us who are blessed to be able to stand to pee, but that's not my situation. Um, Yes. You know, that's why I usually put down a toilet seat cover. If it's not there, I actually sit, but many people do hover. And the truth is, is yes, if you have open skin, you know, due to some sort of like, you know, let's say even that you just had sex and you have little like tears in the, you know, tears in the skin, pimples, you know, other little cuts that you're not aware of, those can be points of entry for other bacteria. Now, Dr. Park, one of the things that people worry about is catching some type of sexually transmitted disease from a toilet seat. And as we understand it, that's not something we should worry about. Tell us more. Not at all. And, um, you know, I can't tell you, as you know, I'm a um, an STI researcher and, and I also see patients and I can't tell you how many times someone has come to me, I've given them an STI diagnosis and they suspected it because they had some symptoms and they said, you know, their partner said, oh, I must have caught it from a toilet seat. Well, you know, that's really, um, I'm not going to say that, it, you know, it could never happen, but really it's so unlikely that probably infidelity is uh, the situation that's going on. And of course, um, you know, things like gonorrhea and chlamydia and syphilis, you know, you're not going to catch from just sitting on a toilet seat. I mean, unless you're, you know, for someone with a vagina, like rubbing the urethra against the toilet seat, and there's, you know, actually something on the surface, but nobody does that when they actually sit down to pee. So there's a lot of fear about catching STIs from toilet seats, but that's really, you know, STIs are caught from having sex and and not from sitting down in a public restroom. Now, Dr. Park, speaking of sex, and in particular, post-pandemic sex, even though the pandemic is not over, um, you have written about this Mm -hmm. in a recent article, and you point out that people are starting to act as if the pandemic is, in fact, over. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, how is that affecting their behavior, and in particular, their sexual behavior? Well, what we've seen from the national data on the STIs that we do surveillance on in this country, we've seen that the rates of syphilis and gonorrhea bounced right back. And in fact, they are higher than they were before the pandemic. So certainly, you know, people have sort of gone back to their old ways. Things like chlamydia um, have not quite caught up, but they, you know, are quickly going to be catching up and then exceeding what we had before. So we're certainly still in the middle of an STI epidemic, and we had just a little sort of pause while people were sheltering in place. But now everybody's sort of back to their usual routine. And so I think we can expect, you know, that we're going to be seeing just as much STIs now as we saw before the pandemic. I'm certainly seeing that in our clinic. And then, you know, something to mention as well, and since we're talking about things living on surfaces, is monkeypox, which is sort of the latest kind of virus on the scene that is primarily being sexually transmitted right now, but certainly can be transmitted um, from surfaces as well. Now, Dr. Park, as I understand it, monkeypox is, is not classified as a sexually transmitted infection, but most people are catching it through sexual encounters. Can you help us understand that distinction? Yeah, you know, the thing is, is monkeypox can be transmitted through really any close contact. So any skin to skin contact. And as we know, you know, sex requires that. So that's primarily how it's being transmitted at this time. However, we also know that it can be in respiratory droplets and it can also... um you know, so and really, it can also live on surfaces that are porous. So things like clothing, um, bed sheets, and unfortunately, can actually live on those surfaces for weeks. And live virus has actually been cultured after the fact from surfaces such as clothing. So even just sharing clothing with somebody, and when you're wearing clothing, it does cause a little friction. You know what I mean? As you walk or whatnot, that can be enough to transmit um, monkeypox. So it certainly does not have to be sex. Could you give our listeners some recommendations about behavior? Yes. Whether it's, you know, something as quote unquote simple as gonorrhea yep. or chlamydia or something as exotic and somewhat scary as monkeypox, what should they be doing and what should they be avoiding? 
Sure. So, um, you know, I certainly don't tell people to completely abstain because they're afraid to catch an STI. I encourage people to have sex. You know, sex is pleasurable. We should have it. We should enjoy it. What I do say is that if you're going to be having more than one partner, it's better to actually have some time in between partners and not be going back and forth between two partners or more during a short period of time. Having concurrent partners is actually a really efficient way of transmitting STIs throughout your entire sexual network. And if you actually have just one partner at a time and then test in between, that's a safer way to avoid spreading STIs in the community. So one at a time is best and testing in between is the other way. Or I have some patients who have sex with more than one partner, but they have sort of a closed group. And it's, you know, it's only the three of us. It's only the four of us. We don't play with other people. And, you know, they have agreements um, in terms of testing regularly. So I think same thing goes for monkeypox. What I'm saying to people right now is, you know, this concept of pods that we made during COVID. So pods. And if you have any symptoms, anything going on like a rash, then pause, you know, pods and pause is what I'm calling it. And if you can press pause, if you have, you know, any new lesions in the genital area or any new rash on your body at all, or monkeypox can also cause sort of these flu-like symptoms, you know, with fatigue and headache and fever. And so you might say, maybe I'm getting COVID. You might also be getting monkeypox. So if you're feeling unwell at all, I tell people, please pause on your sex life until, you know, you have it sorted out. Now, you've suggested testing. Tell us a little bit mm-hmm. more about uh, testing, because I think some of the tests for sexually transmitted infections are, you know, doctors are accustomed to them and, and yep. may have them available at the clinic. Monkeypox testing maybe is more complicated. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, early on, it was so much more complicated and the access to testing was really limited to public health laboratories. But now I'm really happy to report that most of the large commercial laboratories out there, you know, and I'll just, I don't have any sort of skin in the game with which laboratory that people use, but the biggest ones in the country are labs like uh, Quest, LabCorp, ARUP, Mayo. They all have the capacity to now do monkeypox testing. So, Really, any provider in the United States should be able to order it. You know, the only thing about doing the testing is that right now it's recommended to put on a gown, face shield, um, an N95 mask. And so it's just having the right, you know, personal protective equipment in your office setting to be able to do that. But right now, given how little vaccine we have, I think everybody needs to be prepared to be able to do monkeypox testing. But it's so easy. I mean, I've done it actually quite a few times now. It's just a swat, you know, it's just a Q-tip that you rub against a lesion and put it inside of a tube. So it's not any harder than doing testing for any other STI. When we talked to you last, you mentioned that for people who were feeling very nervous uh, uh-huh. about COVID and not wanting to go into a clinic or a public yeah. health uh, center, that that it's actually possible to do some testing from home. That is to say, there are yes. ways of getting test kits online. Can you help us understand how that process works for those people who say, well, I live way out in the country and I don't want to try and go into the clinic someplace? Yes, there are online providers, you know, of STI testing and something really interesting that happened, by the way, as an aside, from the time that we met until the time that we're meeting now, the last time is that um, in California, where I'm based, um, there was a law passed that requires insurers to pay for these home-based STI tests. And now there's um, actually a proposal in Maryland as well. So it'll be interesting to see if other states come on board and actually require health insurers to pay for this testing. But for now, a lot of people would have to go to an online provider And then the test kits are mailed to the home. You collect your urine. If um, you're doing swabs for the of the throat for gonorrhea and chlamydia or the rectum, then you collect those swabs. Or um, and then you uh, usually do a finger stick to get uh, drops of blood for HIV. You can do hepatitis C. You can do syphilis. And then you mail all of that back. And then you get your results online and have a visit with uh, you know one of their providers if anything is positive or they will refer you to a local clinic for treatment. So I've certainly had 
you know, folks in my life, patients, et cetera, who've used this. And there are also nonprofits who are now starting to offer this testing, you know, at, at low or no cost as well. So there's a lot of movement in that direction nationally. Dr. Park, these are challenging times still. We're, we're still in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Uh, we've got this monkeypox thing going on as a public health emergency. Yes. And you've mentioned that uh, rates of syphilis and gonorrhea and chlamydia, even though they're not exotic, they're still concerning. The rates are rising. What are your recommendations for healthy sexual relations in such times? Yeah, I mean... As you guys both know, it's just been such a difficult few years for all of us. And it's not just sex. I mean, it's everything, you know what I mean? The economy, the, you know, the climate. I mean, um, so, you know, the thing is, is that sex can be a great source of joy for many people. And I'm still encouraging people to, you know, enjoy their sex lives. And I just say that right now, having, you know, lots of sex with, anonymous partners is a little bit higher risk than it used to be, especially because of monkeypox. And so that's why I'm encouraging people, you know, not to stop having sex, but to, you know, lower their number of partners, space them out. And honestly, barriers, you know, such as condoms that you can wear, you know, inside the vagina or the rectum, we used to call it the female condom, or the, you know, latex barriers that can go over the penis will protect those areas very well from viruses such as monkeypox and protect extremely well against gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. So I wish we had more tools than that to protect against STIs. But the other thing I wanted to tell you folks about is that, um, you know, we do have HIV prep, which is a daily pill that you can take to prevent HIV. And so I do encourage people who are having, you know, multiple partners who've had lots of STIs in the past to go ahead and start that because that's another insurance policy that you can do, which gives you peace of mind. And then just recently, and by recently, I mean um, maybe a week ago, there was an announcement at the International AIDS meeting of a new strategy to prevent STIs, which is sort of a morning after pill, doxycycline, which is an antibiotic we've had, you know, since the 40s. You can take it actually after sex, and that will prevent um, chlamydia and syphilis and to a lesser extent gonorrhea. So that's a new sort of strategy to, um, you know, avoid uh, new STIs as sort of this morning after approach. So that's something I want to let your listeners know about to sort of pay attention to, because I think that will be sort of developing, you know, in the next um, year or so. Well, that's excellent news. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ina Park. Thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Oh, I love meeting with you guys anytime. You've been listening to Dr. Ina Park, Associate Professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. She's author of Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski Engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at GaiaHerbs.com. Today's show is number 1,313. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can post your comments to let us know what you think about today's interview. You can also email us. Our address is radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. Usually, we post the show on our website by Monday morning, but this week it'll go up on Tuesday. We do have something extra. Dr. Gerba tells us about the dirtiest thing in a hotel room. What could it be? At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. 
In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.